Jeff, if we haven't met. I serve on the pastoral staff team with Stu. And as you might imagine, the last three months have been really fun. Stu's a lot of fun. Well, Stu shared some fun facts about him. So I'll give you one fun fact about me. When I was a kid, my favorite superhero was Spider-Man. Uh, I think it had to do with the cartoon, the Spider-Man cartoon, Spider-Man and Friends. And then uh, I also somehow came across like a record, just a record. It was a record. It was told like Spider-Man stories. Uh, and I remember when Uncle Ben died, uh, they had a funeral kind of, you know, like just zoom through it and they played Rock of Ages. I always think of Spider-Man when I hear that song, which is totally random. Anyway, but I was super excited in the early 2000s when they came out with Spider-Man movies. I was like, I can't believe they're finally making a movie about Spider-Man. It's so cool. And Tobey Maguire was my Spider-Man. He was great. I watched all three. Um, And even though in retrospect, that third one might not be as good as I thought it was the first time I saw it. I loved all three when they came out. I was so excited. In fact, so much so that when they came out with the new round of The Amazing Spider-Man starring Andrew Garfield, I was like, why are they doing this? We already have Tobey. We we don't need another Spider-Man. Well, along the way, I get married, I have a kid, and Jay is right around that fun young age in like 2016 when the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, Disney's doing its thing, introduced Spider-Man into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So my son also gets into Spider-Man. Here's Jay. He's a little younger in this picture. There he is. I would have given anything for, I tell him he's like, stop dad. But I, because when I was his age, it's like anything red or blue was a costume, right? Like that, I just live vicariously through our kids. But there's Jay rocking Spider-Man. So Jay and I both love Spider-Man. So I'll ask, how many of you have seen the newest uh, No Way Home Spider-Man? So some of you have, some of you haven't. I'm going to ruin it for you if you haven't. I'm not really going to ruin it for you because you might want to go see it. But massive spoiler alert. But I'm assuming if you haven't seen it by now, you're probably not going to see it. But anyway, so we're watching this newest movie. Kami, Jay, and I are watching it in our home. And I had heard something, so I was kind of excited, but I didn't really know. I'd kind of not done too much reading about it. We're watching the movie, and what happens in the storyline is they, they merge. Uh, like It's like alternative storylines come together. So you're watching it and stuff, and it's part of this bigger story. You're watching it, things are unfolding. And, and Tom Holland is our modern-day Spider-Man. He's really cool. But in the movie, guess who shows up? Tobey Maguire. I'm so excited. He's like old Spider-Man now, but he shows up. I don't have a lot of like cool movies. That was a cool movie moment for me. I'm like watching this movie with my son. My Spider-Man, Tobey, is there. Jay Spider-Man Tom is there, and we're just watching it together. It's really fun. And I was getting so into it, I was like, oh, I hope they bring I don't even like Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man. I hope they bring him. they got to bring him. It would be so cool if they have one. And sure enough, Andrew Garfield shows up. This really cool moment. And just, in, in a sense, and I'll just use this language intentionally, right? But, but I'm living in the present, and all of a sudden, these, what I thought were separate, different stories, come flying into the present moment with me. And all of a sudden, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield and Tom Holland are somehow all a part of the same story. All right? Put a pin in that. We're we're talking about communion. You're like, what does Spider-Man have to do with communion? Hang in there! I have a point. 
But we're in this series called The Table, and we're trying, and actually somebody, actually somebody really encouraged me this morning and said they've, they've been receiving communion a little bit differently the last two weeks because we're talking about it, <laughs> rethinking some things, had some things they want to unlearn about what it means to meet with Jesus in this time. And I, I do pray we're going to spend a fair amount of time doing this, but you'll see, I mean, I don't, I don't think we're wasting our time in doing this. It, I think it'll even be pretty clear in these first few verses we read. So we're in Luke chapter 22. Uh, there's several different accounts of the Last Supper, but this is the last week of Jesus' life. This is what is often called Monday Thursday. Tomorrow in the narrative is Good Friday, okay? Luke 22, verse 7. Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, we could say two of his most trusted disciples, ahead and said, go and prepare this Passover meal so we can eat it together. We're going to talk about Passover this morning. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked him. He replied, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room. We often call it the upper room. That is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal, this Passover meal. So they went off to the city and they found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepare the Passover meal there. So what's going on here? Because it kind of sounds like a little bit of a secretive, like almost a spy movie. Uh, and, I, and I think there is a sense to it because I think Jesus had set this up in advance. Uh, in that day and age, usually women would carry around the water. So it wouldn't have been like crazy, crazy for a guy to be carrying around water. But a guy carrying around water like this would look, I mean, he might go unnoticed. But if you're looking for him, you'd see him. It'd be a good covert way of communicating. And Jesus has prearranged this. Why all the secrecy? Well, because, I mean, if you read through the Gospels, being in Luke chapter 1 and you get to chapter 22, you'll know that there have been several uh, plot attempts on Jesus' life. He's riled people up a few times. And he's now, I mean, as we are in Holy Week, he's done things intentionally like cleanse the temple. (laughs) He's done things intentionally to intensify the moment. And I think he's also, we'll read about Judas, he's also aware that Judas is up to no good. And so, so Jesus is aware all this stuff's going on, but he has something he wants to do. It's tied to Passover. It's really important. Uh, as I was sitting with this this week, I don't know if anyone's ever asked you this question. I think it's a really, I thought about making you answer it, but I was like, it's a hard question to answer. But has anybody ever asked you the question, what would you do if you knew you were going to die tomorrow? What would you do? What would you do if you knew today was your last full 24 hours to live? What would you do with your time? Let me kind of increase the significance of communion in this Last Supper for you. We know what Jesus not only, I would say, wanted to do, but felt like he needed to do the day before he died. Because <laughs> tomorrow's Good Friday, and I think he knows. Jesus was like, I, gotta, I can't let Judas, I can't let anyone else figure out where we're at yet. I need, I need one more day. I've got to do the Last Supper, this Passover meal with my disciples. It's absolutely critical. So I hope that raises, even gets your attention a little. This is really significant stuff that we're talking about. Jesus had something he wanted to do, and this is it. So we're going to read a little bit about, I mean, Luke just gives us a small summary because it's kind of how, it's kind of tradition passed on to how we practice it. We don't, 
we don't have a lamb anymore often when we do communion. But, but this was a meal. It would have been a retelling of the Passover story. I'll tell it to you a little bit just in case you haven't heard it for a while or maybe it's your first time in church and you're like, what's the Passover story? I'll, I'll tell you that in just a minute. But, but it's a meal, and at the center of the meal, it's not mentioned in here, but it's this lamb, the Passover lamb, is, is kind of the main course of the meal. But there's several different iterations, and Jesus, as the rabbi, as their teacher, they're their disciple, his disciples, he's hosting the meal and guiding them through this meal that's telling a story. But what Jesus is going to do is he's going to, on one level, we could say, re redefine the story around himself. But I actually think it's more accurate to say he's going to help the disciples to see that the story was really always about him. People maybe didn't see that before, and it probably took a little bit of the resurrection to give the disciples eyes to see this. But in the Last Supper, Jesus is trying to help them see that this whole Old Testament story, God's story, is all about Jesus. Let's read Luke 14. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. That's the name of our series, The Table. And Jesus said, I have been very eager. This is something I wanted to do, eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. Again, that just alludes to what I was saying. I think he knew what he was doing. I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not sure the disciples would have fully understood that in the moment, probably had different thoughts about what that might mean. But I think as you keep reading in the Gospels, I think it's one of the reasons why you see the Gospel writers want to tell you that the resurrected Jesus had meals with people. (laughs) This kingdom is breaking in like crazy, right? Verse 17, then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God comes. Then verse 19, if you were with us last week and I kind of highlighted a main verse from Luke 24. We started in Luke 24 in our series. And it kind of, this is why I think Luke is is really kind of jumping out of the Last Supper with what we looked at last week. Look at what he says in verse 19. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it, and he broke it in pieces and he gave it to the disciples. That's basically exactly how Luke says it in Luke 24. And then Jesus says these very familiar words that we will again, say together as a church family as we gather together in a a few minutes, right? This is my body, which is given for you. It's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then they would eat the Passover lamb, right? And again, we'll talk about that story. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant, this new relationship between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So Jesus is kind of redefining this meal around himself or explaining. I think what he really is trying to do now is is to give the disciples categories to understand what his suffering and death that's going to take place very soon, what it all means. He's investing it with meaning, and he wants the disciples to know beforehand. And, he's, and we, this would go way beyond a sermon, but he's, he's, he's doing it during the Passover, which is one thing. But he's also using language that is just, what it's doing is it's bringing together all these stories that might seem fragmented from the past into this moment of the Last Supper. Do you see my Spider-Man connection? 
You're watching Tom Holland, and then all of a sudden, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are there. How are they all there together? Well, you've got to watch the movie, and somehow it fits. Now, Jesus is doing this in an even more profound way, but he's using language that is connecting all these dots of all these themes of what God is doing to rescue his people. And you're sitting there and you're in the moment and it's just a Passover meal on Monday, Thursday, but all of a sudden Jesus is investing it with so much more meaning. So, I mean, the disciples, again, they, they wouldn't have understood it all in the moment. So what's going on with the Passover? Just a refresher. If you, if, you, if, you, if you reread Exodus, Exodus is this famous story of Moses, right? Liberating the people from the tyrant leaderships. They're enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. They, they, uh, Pharaoh is threatened by the Israelites at the beginning. At the, and at the end of Exodus chapter 1, what he does is he, he gives an order to kill all the newborn male boys born. And they are thrown into the Nile River. So what then happens is God is going to set, he wants to liberate his people. They've cried out to God. He's heard their cry and he wants to liberate them. And so this is where you get the famous story of the 10 plagues. And you, you know, this is all connected because what's the first plague? That same Nile River where these innocent children were murdered turns to blood. It's like the blood of the innocent calling out. And there's a harsh warning in Exodus chapter 4 that really Moses is telling the Pharaoh, look, look, the people of Israel is God's firstborn son. And if you, I mean, you, what you, the evil you brought into this world is going to come back upon you. <laughs> now you have a chance, I mean, he gets a chance in Exodus 4, you have a chance, just let God's people go and be free of all this. But Pharaoh, we know he's a hard heart, right? Hard heart. So Pharaoh won't do it. So what happens then is you have this night where this destroyer is going to come and the firstborn of, of everyone is going to be uh, killed, right? Entered into death. But what God does, and this is part of this, this, this theme that we're going to look at, is God is going to provide a substitute. <laughs> God is going to provide a substitute to give people a way out of death into life. And so he, he says, anybody who takes a lamb and kills this lamb and puts the blood on the doorpost, what you're going to do, I'll give you, an, again, I'm, I'm telling you, there are, there are, these stories are all just converging and running into each other. Your house is going to become like an ark in the midst of the flood. Why do I say that? Well, because if we knew Hebrew, <laughs> it, 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 this phrase, into the house, is literally in Hebrew the same word as Noah's ark backwards, <laughs> Like, we would notice that, right? You would notice that. So, what, what again, you have all these things coming. What, what God is saying in this is, look, I am going, your house is going to become a mini Eden. This lamb is going to be a substitute. And if you put blood on the doorway and you walk through, you're going to be in your own ark. And as the flood of justice comes through for what Pharaoh has done, you will ride out that flood in your ark. God will be... Right? And again, all these connections back. Jesus is our, he's our ark. <laughs> you, he will be your refuge. You will be safe. It's this theme that runs through. But, but Jesus is using other language as he's going through this and putting himself in the center of all of this. And so it's, it's bringing about all these stories. Maybe the first place that you start to see it clearly is in Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel, which 
If you've ever been confused by that, you can come to Form by Story this Wednesday at 6.30. Stu mentioned it. There were 60 people there. (laughs) But we'll make room for you if you want to be there. We're going to talk about Cain and Abel. There's a sacrifice that Abel makes, and there's all kinds of, like, ambiguity as a riddle to it. We'll talk about it. But it's the beginning of this theme almost, this, this sacrifice being offered. What's going on? But you see it play out. It, it, it gets a little bit clearer with Abraham. What happens with Abraham? Abraham is going to sacrifice his son Isaac. And what does God do? He offers up a ram in a thicket. God provides a substitute. But it's not just the way this theme unfolds in the biblical story. Is it's not just bound to animals. One of the beautiful stories in the book of Genesis is the interplay between Jacob's sons. Right? These, these brothers who, who are jealous and envious of, of Joseph and leave him to die, right? Sell him off into slavery. Later, they're in front of Joseph. They don't know it. They're in front of Joseph in Egypt. And, and Joseph is trying to see have they changed. And so he creates this whole scenario where his brother Benjamin seems to be at risk. And there's this incredible moment. I think it's why Judah becomes the line of the Messiah. There's this incredible moment where Judah says, hey, take me instead. I'll be a willing substitute. I will take Benjamin's place. It's this theme that just unfolds. And then we get to it, we get it with Moses does the same thing a couple times, really. We talked a little bit about it if you were with us in our Deuteronomy series. Moses says, I'll be the substitute for these rebellious people. Take me instead. (laughs) I'll be the substitute. And then you also get this whole sacrificial system, which is often very, very confusing to us just because it's just from another time and another place. But in the center of the center of the center of all of this stuff is Leviticus chapter 16, which is the Day of Atonement. Again, I think Jesus is even bringing this language in in the Last Supper. In the Day of Atonement, you have two goats. And and again, sometimes we get confused by exactly what's going on. One of these goats is sacrificed And the way it lays out is brought into the tabernacle, which is the tent of the presence of God, which eventually will become the temple. But that first goat, the the Bible tells us, is he's cleansing the tabernacle. It's a substitute. The second goat, the sins of the people are placed upon this scapegoat, and that goat is sent off in the wilderness to carry the sins away. (laughs) Get them out of here, right? I mean, you just have this theme, these things, and then you get to Isaiah. And Isaiah is one of these brilliant Holy Spirit-inspired prophets who begins to write these poems about what God may do. And you get to Isaiah 53, and he's thinking about this this theme and all, and and he writes about a suffering servant, one who would come and bear the iniquities of God's people to rescue them and redeem them. This theme has always been there, that God is going to save his people through a substitute that he provides all the way back to really the first prophecy, right? Genesis chapter 3. We probably don't talk about it enough for how, how important it is. But Adam and Eve rebel, and they're cast out of the Garden of Eden. But God says, look, I'm going to send someone. There is going to be a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the enemy. He will crush the head of the serpent. (laughs) But what does he also say? But in the crushing, his heel will still be bent. I mean, this is why Jesus is constantly frustrated with his disciples for not understanding that he must suffer. (laughs) 
It's always been there, Jesus. How do you not see it? I mean, the theme is so obvious, you just don't want to see it. Maybe we just can't see it until the resurrection. I don't know. But, but this is this theme that just flows all the way through the story of God providing a substitute. And I do think what Jesus is trying to make clear at the Last Supper, and then it will get clear and clear, and the apostles will reflect upon this after the resurrection and with the help of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I mean, Jesus is the snake crusher, right, whose heel is bit on the cross. Jesus is the refuge that we need in the midst of the storm and of the flood, Right? Jesus is the ram caught in the thicket that God provides for us. Jesus is, I mean, what happened in Jesus? Everybody's, you can't touch that leper. You can't touch that woman. You can't, you can't be with those tax collectors. They're going to make you dirty. Jesus is like, no, nah, I'm going to make them clean. <laughs> Jesus is the goat that's offered that brings cleansing to all of creation. Jesus is the scapegoat who is crucified outside of the city because he carries our sins away from us. I mean, Jesus is all, he is, he's the descendant of Judah. He is the true king who says, I will take your place. He's the, he's, he's the greater prophet than Moses who says, I will take your place. Jesus is bringing all of these stories together, right? They're in the upper room with Tom Holland, and all of a sudden, Toby McGuire and Andrew Garfield are there. But he's brought all these stories together, and, and somehow it works, but only because it's Jesus. He's telling the Passover story, but he's investing it, again, some would say with new meaning, but I would say with the meaning it was always meant to have. <laughs> That's what he's doing. One author says this, Jesus was drawing into one event a millennium and more of Jewish celebrations. The Jews had believed for some while that the original Exodus pointed on to a new one in which God would do at last what he had long promised. He would forgive the sins of Israel and the world once and for all. Sin, a far greater slave master than Egypt had ever been, would be defeated in the way that God went about turning things upside down, right? Jesus is sitting there at a secret meal in Jerusalem. And, and what he's doing and saying is, is, he's saying, it's happening now. This is the moment. And it's all because of what I'm going to do. Don't miss the moment, Jesus is. And he keeps going. I think this is all significant because not only is Jesus doing this for us, what do we say? Come as you are, but don't stay there. He's also then inviting us into a new way of love, a new way of life. Uh, sometimes we don't see it until we experience the forgiveness and love in Jesus, and then it opens our eyes up to, oh, we were meant for that too, and we were meant to share that with others. <laughs> But Jesus, I mean, I just think it's incredible. At the table, he says, here at this table, verse 21, sitting among us as a friend is the man who will betray me. But even now, Jesus serves. He he doesn't point him out exactly, and he's still, even his enemy is at the table, and Jesus is still serving him. I want to come back to that. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die, but what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? And so the disciples began to ask each other, which of them would ever do, is it I, is it I? But they only, I think they only do that for a second, and they're quickly like, oh, no, it couldn't be me. It has to be that guy, right? 
probably the clearest, I don't know, I mean, I don't know, maybe stuff has happened, but I'm, I really think, you know, Simon the Zealot was somebody who, who was kind of like a rebel warrior against the Romans, kind of a secret guerrilla warrior, <laughs> and often even like attacked Jews who were conspiring with the Romans, kind of like a Robin Hood, like, you know, steal and give. And, and, and so you've, it's always amazed me, and we maybe we'll talk more about this, but that Jesus would have a zealot and a tax collector as one of his 12. <laughs> I mean, because Matthew was a Roman conspirator. So I, may, I, mean, I could be wrong, but I feel like Simon's probably like, I know it's Matthew, it's tax collector sellout. I think that's behind what happens here. They begin to argue about among themselves, who, who would be the greatest? Their way of saying it, it couldn't be me who will betray you. I'm, I'm one of, you know, who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus, again, because he's trying to invite us into his kingdom, and his kingdom is different. He says in this world, I, I mean, what we would say, as we've been saying the last few months, in, in, in modern-day Babylon, the kings and great men lorded over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Jesus says, well, of course, the one who sits at the table, but not here. Not here. We'll come back to this idea, too, as we receive communion. But Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. How often do you think of, as you approach the communion table, how often do you think of it as a place where Jesus is serving? And are you too proud to let Jesus serve you? Or too caught up? I'm not worried. Jesus is inviting you to his table to serve you. To willingly be your substitute that God provides in the midst of all the wreckage you've brought into this world and upon yourself. It's pretty incredible, right? The world, modern-day Babylon, Babylon has always measured power, uh, measured greatness by power, the power to kill, the power to obtain, the power to control. But Jesus says greatness in his kingdom is measured by love and humility, service. And even as I was reflecting on these words and then reading what some other people wrote, you know, trying to get into the moment of the Last Supper, I don't think it's crazy to say that the disciples may have expected something more like this than what Jesus said. Jesus takes the bread. You know, he's beginning this messianic movement and they're hoping he's going to overthrow the great enemy Rome. And Jesus breaks the bread and they expect him to say, this is my enemy's body, break it for me. This is my enemy's blood. Spill it for me. But Jesus' enemy, Judas, is sitting right there at the table, and that's not what Jesus does to Judas. <laughs> no, Jesus says, I, I'm the substitute. It's going to be my body. It's going to be my blood. I am going to allow the evil of this world to do its worst to me. And because of that, I'm going to set you free. <laughs> I'm going to lead you out of death and into life. Jesus is saying what he's said all through his ministry, what the Bible has always said. Suffering is going to happen because the world is deeply broken and in need of saving. And as a gift of love, Jesus is going to offer himself willingly and voluntarily to be our substitute. 
to allow evil to do its worst to him on our behalf, to save us from sin and death. And Jesus has chosen the Passover meal to be the container that carries that message forward through the rest of time. The meal isn't pointing, as a, I mean, the, the Passover meal was pointing to the past, but in this moment on the Last Supper, it is now pointing forward to his death because that is where the fulfillment of the kingdom of God is going to come. Jesus is doing for others. He's, he's giving this bread for you and for me. Somehow his suffering is going to bring life to others. And then, I mean, it would have blown the disciples' mind that instead of saying this, this Passover lamb is the blood that covers us, Jesus, no, 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 my blood covers you. <laughs> my blood covers you. Because we're dealing with an enemy that goes way beyond Rome. <laughs> we're dealing with the ultimate evil one, evil itself. We're dealing with sin and selfishness. All the Babylonian ideology we talk about, this self and we're dealing with all Jesus says that's the true tyrant. And it's not just Israel's problem, it's the whole world's problem. And I've come for the world, Jesus says. This is how Jesus explains his death to his followers. And again, it surprised them, but it, it really shouldn't have. The Hebrew prophets looked forward to a day when God would do something radical like this, bring about a new relationship. It's a new covenant between God and his people. And Jesus, this is so important to him because he's convinced that what was happening in that small room, that quiet night, was an event of significance for all humanity at all times. And Jesus is using the storyline of the Passover to help the disciples see that the fulfillment of God's heart for the world is happening right then and there. Jesus saw himself dying in the place of others. Not just rescuing Israel, but rescuing the whole world from, from the slavery of sin and death, setting us free. Well, these are the last three verses in this section. Jesus says, you have stayed with me, verse 28, in my time of trial. And I love this. Just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. So maybe that's another way. I mean, just allow the Holy Spirit to work as we uh, move forward in communion in just a few minutes. But, but sometimes we talk about you're invited to the table. But I also want you to think this morning, Jesus himself has granted you the right to come to his table. He wants to serve you. You have permission to sit at the table with the king of kings and the lord of lords and he says you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of israel we could probably say a lot about this but for just for the sake of this morning let me just say it this way one way to understand what jesus is saying there i pray at the nicene creed just about every day and near the end i pray that um we believe in one holy catholic and apostolic church it's not roman catholic catholic means universal still believe in it <laughs> even though the church has splintered again and again and again. We believe in one, one universal church. There's one, one Lord, one King, one Jesus. We believe in one universal church, but it's apostolic. We trace our lineage back to the apostles. And what do the apostles do? I think, I think a big reason because of what Jesus was doing at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, the apostles valued deeply, and we value deeply the Old Testament, but they learned to read it in light of Jesus, <laughs> which is what well, actually takes practice to do this. 
So, we, so the, the apostles sit as our judges. They watch over us. Our faith is handed down to us from them. It's something we receive. We don't make this up. That's why, that's why we, we do stuff like form by story. That's why we take the Bible so seriously, because it's an apostolic faith. It's been handed down to us, and it's amazing, and it's incredible. But I want to hone in here on this idea that Jesus grants the right to eat and drink at table with him. I've mentioned this before, but one of the things that Jesus does all the way through his ministry, but I think it finds its climax here in these verses, is that Jesus is moving the center place of meeting in redemption from the temple to the table. I mean, in a sense, he's not because he actually is the temple himself. (laughs) But in terms of how we practice and experience it. Uh, One of the examples that I've used along these lines is, imagine you had planned this incredible trip to go overseas, out of the country. But you know how much planning that takes. And in the midst of all the details and all the planning, you forgot to check one thing. When does your passport expire? And you're a week out and you look and you realize it's going to expire the first day you're out of the country. And you have a week. And you know there is no way you're getting through all the machinery to get your passport updated before you go. And in your desperation, you're sharing your story with a friend. And just imagine that this friend says to you, I can, I can take care of that for you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. I have the authority to approve a renewal of your passport. It's all good. I mean, you would laugh. I mean, or, or somebody says to you, you don't have to go to the DMV for a driver's license. Now you're even more excited, right? <laughs> but you understand that's what Jesus is doing. He is saying you don't have to go to the temple to be purified. You don't have to go to the temple to be cleansed. You don't have to go to the temple to be forgiven. Just come to me, is what Jesus is saying. And where will Jesus be? He'll be at a table. (laughs) I mean, I picked the Gospel of Luke partly because if you read through the Gospel of Luke, the way Luke tells the story, Jesus is just going from party to party. It's just table to table. And if he's not at a party, he's telling a story about a party. I mean, it's just one big table celebration for Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's moving from temple to table. It's a massive shift in how we understand that now, if if what Jesus is saying is true, it means that, that experiencing the kingdom of God is like eating and drinking with close friends at a table. A place where you know that you know that you know that you belong. You're welcome there. What do we say? A community of people we're all squeeze. You, you show up late. Oh, there's no room. We'll make room for you. We'll make room for you. We'll squeeze if we have. We want you here. Because with us, as followers of Jesus, because of what he's done for us, we have this safe place where there's nothing to hide, nothing to fear. You don't have to prove yourself. You belong. You don't have to please anyone. You're just welcome here. Jesus has taken care of all of that. You you can hear it in his language about service at the table. Instead of a hierarchical arrangement, it's a shared table. Instead Instead of running to the seat of honor to see who gets the biggest piece of the pie, it's a a slow, steady, humble walk to see who can serve first. 
No, 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 you serve first. I, I want to wash. I, I'll, I'll serve first. You eat. I want to wash your feet. I mean, that's the posture in the kingdom. It's, and, and instead of being caught up in this, like, never-ending repetition of going to the temple for sacrifice after sacrifice, it's part of, the Bible already said this before Jesus. It was never about the sacrifices. The sacrifices were meant to give us the story to tell us that we need a substitute, but God will provide it. He always has. And what does the author of Hebrews say? Jesus is the sacrifice to end all that. We don't have to do that anymore. We just sit at the table with our friend. And he serves us willingly because he is the embodiment of love. That's what love does. There's no assigned seats. It's just come and sit down. There's no more worrying about, oh, am I doing this right? Do I have to do these things to move up the ladder? Or, or am I doing this wrong? Is somebody going to tell me you're doing it all wrong? No, no, it's just come to the table. You spilled your drink. Here's a napkin. Let's clean it up. We'll laugh about it. Come as you are. Don't change your clothes. Just come as you are. Now, don't stay there because we all have to learn the way of love and service from Jesus. And don't stay there because he's forgiven you, which is what we're going to do next. That's what, you know, communion. We're going we're gonna to receive. This is one of the ways that God wants to communicate his forgiveness, his cleansing touch. That's where, that's where the change happens, when you understand that this is a God of loves who, who, who willingly offers himself up as our substitute and allow, allows the evil that we've brought into the world to work itself out on him rather than on us. <laughs> I mean, we've created a scenario that only leads to death, and Jesus says, well, let me provide a way of life, and I will be, and I will be that way. That's what Jesus says. So I invite you this, this morning as we move forward with communion to, to come with a posture of allowing Jesus to serve you. And if you think you're too good for that or too bad for that, I challenge you. <laughs> Let Jesus serve you. It's his table. It's not our table. And you and I are invited not because we're worthy, but because we're loved. Simply because we're seen and we're loved. So I'm going to invite uh, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I invite our ushers to get ready, uh, and Dave is going to play on the piano, and we're going to pass the trays. And I want you to just sit with Jesus. That's th- this is about meeting with Jesus. Spend some time with Him. Whatever you want to talk about. Uh, maybe you're used to confessing sin during this time. Great. Maybe you need an encouragement. Just sit and know that. That Jesus loves you. He want, and maybe you just imagine Jesus serving you. And what would it look like? What do you need from him this morning? And open your heart up. Allow him to maybe provide that for you.